excited that you're here tonight. We're really honored that you came to share this journey with us. If by the end of tonight you find that you are completely immersed in this book and you can't wait until next week to hear more of it, you can pick up your own copy of Chimera Within the Ambit out in the foyer at intermission or after tonight's event. We're asking for a suggested donation of $10-15 per book because 100% of the proceeds for the book are going straight to Teen Challenge. Another great way that you can support Teen Challenge is by picking up one of our Freedom Bracelets or our Freedom Keychains. Those are out there for a suggested donation of $15 to $20. Again, 100% of the proceeds for that will also go to Teen Challenge. If you would like to just make a straight donation to Teen Challenge, you can look for a red envelope in the back of the seats in front of you. Tuck your donation in there. If you're making a check, you can make it out to Celebration Center. And then you'll see that there's a box by the door on the way out of the sanctuary in the back corner back there. You can slip your envelope in there and we will make sure that it gets calculated in with everything else going to Teen Challenge. Also, just as a reminder, the book that we're going to be reading has a lot of mature, really deep content to it. So we do recommend it for kids that are over the age of 14. If you have kids, you want to take them upstairs to the child care area. You'll get a raffle ticket up there with a four-digit, last four digits will be your code. The four-digit code, will pop, if it pops up on the screen at any time during the reading, that's your indicator that we need you to go upstairs and help us out with something with your kids. If you, for any reason, need to step out of the sanctuary during the reading and you step out on this side, we will have live audio playing out there as well so that you can still hear what's going on inside of the sanctuary. Also, as a reminder, we are collecting or asking for a simple donation of $2 per child or $8 per family to help go to our youth that's working upstairs in the child care area. That money is going to help support scholarships to send those kids to camp. So it's a great cause. You can make those donations for child care at the table down here where we're selling books and bracelets and keychains. If you have any questions about that, find somebody in a reading shirt and we can help answer your questions about child care. Last week, we read chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Chimera Within the Ambit. This week, we'll continue with chapter 7, 8, and most of chapter 9. But first, here's what you need to know from last week. Up until six months ago, Britt and her adopted son, Seth, had only known the world within the borders of the Ambit, a post-apocalyptic society run strictly by rules to protect its inhabitants from repeat encroachment. After being banished from the Ambit, Britt and Seth are retrieved by Maris and taken into the upside-down, underground world to the outside, a place where there are no rules and everyone is left to fend for themselves. Desperate and doing all she can to provide safety and survival for Seth and herself, Britt trains with Maris's son, Zale, to farm for survival resources in the dangerous world above ground, in the city formerly known as Chicago, where mysterious lizard-like creatures called monitors are hunting humans. While on her first farming mission, Britt comes face to face with the deadly beasts and narrowly escapes with a small treasure that may be the only thing that will earn her more recognition at the resource rally than her gender. Not only is she the first female farmer to su successfully return from the farming mission, she is the first ever to return with a monitor's tooth. But recognition in the outside, although beneficial to her survival, also means that the mysterious powers that be, known as the Underground, have taken notice of her. 
This week we find Britt confused and excited as the caller from the resource rally has requested to meet with her regarding her precious find, the tooth. Here we go. This is Chimera within the Ambit, Chapter 7, The Tooth. The caller's office was small. I could tell by the looks of it that things weren't very organized and that eased my mind as I waited for him. It's hard to be intimidated by someone who isn't uptight about details. As I strolled around his office exploring my environment, I stopped for a minute to look at my reflection in the long oval mirror on, on his office wall. My eyes were a paler blue than they used to be. My mother was white and my father was black, so my skin was a perfect blend of the two, but with the dust and ash that had come to rest on me from the fire above ground, my skin almost matched my dark hair. Pieces of my hair had fallen from my ponytail, which I had styled earlier that day. I thought back to the careful preparations I'd made that morning for my first farming mission. After I bathed, I pulled my hair back tight into a ponytail. I missed the lavender-scented oil that I used to get from the ambit. It kept my hair smelling nice as well as soft and moisturized. The outside didn't have anything nearly as nice, so I resorted to wearing my hair up most of the time. Vale recommended that I remove my necklace and rings before the mission, and besides my wedding band, I obeyed. For the mission, I wore a light blue smock with cargo pants and heavy brown boots that laced up the front. Seth loaned me his leather satchel to use. Other than needing to extend the strap on it, it fit perfectly and had proven to be a worthy accessory. Inside my satchel, I packed some dry food packets, a salt bomb, and a first aid kit including the burn ointment, which, I, which had already come in handy. Zale encouraged me to take water into the farm with us, but I opted not to this time because I felt like the extra weight might be a problem. I leaned into the mirror to examine my face. I'd aged since coming to the outside. In fact, I'm sure my smile lines were the only wrinkles on my face that hadn't deepened. The cracks on my forehead were more obvious now, and I hoped for a second that it was because of the dirt that filled them. I licked my thumb and rubbed the dirt away to expose the lines. I tried to smooth my loose curls down so that I could get a better look at my forehead. Almost every curl sprung back out of control immediately. Then I noticed a stream of dried red that had dripped down my face, the same one Zale had pointed out earlier. In all the confusion and chaos of the rally, I'd almost forgotten about my injury from the mission. I stepped back and noticed that the red had spilled all the way down to the shoulder of my once blue smock. It was now a dirty color of burnt black from the fire and dark red from the blood. I was surprised at how much I had bled. It was more than I realized. A lot more. I found it odd that I wasn't in pain from what must have been a pretty significant wound. I searched the caller's office and found a clean tissue which I dampened with spit and returned to the mirror. I parted my hair to find the culprit. After a minute or two of searching, I couldn't locate the abrasion. I noticed myself scowling in the mirror from uncertainty. I assumed that my body was in shock from the injury and that was why I hadn't felt it, but now I wasn't even sure that I'd been hurt at all. I looked at my hands, my torso, my legs and feet, using the mirror to examine my backside, but there was still no sign of injury. I released my hair from my ponytail and used my hands to feel my scalp for cuts. Still, I produced nothing but crusts of dried blood and debris from the rubble and fire. I pulled my hair back into a ponytail again and inspected my neck and ears for blood, but still nothing seemed out of place or injured. 
I exhaled a frustrated breath through my nose. I didn't understand. If I'm not hurt, then why was I bleeding? And if I wasn't bleeding, then who was? I jumped a little when the door opened behind me. I spun around, not expecting to see Zale standing there looking at me. He was clean-shaven and had changed out of his dirty mission clothes. Now he was wearing a t-shirt and jeans. I think he may have even attempted to put a comb through his dark hair, which was even greasier than normal or freshly washed. Now that, now that his face was free of stubble and scruff, I could better see his facial structure. His jawbone was sharp when he wasn't talking. I'd never seen him so clean-cut and found that his freshness softened my approach to him. Hey, he said. Hey, you cleaned up. I cringed at how silly that must have sounded. I immediately shuddered to think of myself as one of his dirty birds. That was enough to snap me out of my daze. Yeah, you got us some notice with that silly little tooth of yours, so now it's my turn to impress, Zale teased. I was officially turned off now. You okay? he asked. Yeah, I think so. I pondered that statement. Zale took a seat in one of the chairs by the caller's desk, reaching for a candy in a glass jar. I returned to my reflection in the mirror. After another minute, I asked, Hey, Zale, remember how I said that I got hit in the head with a rock or something? He nodded. Well, I'm not sure that I did. What do you mean? He stood up and crossed to stand behind me in the mirror. He was quite a bit taller than me, so his reflection towered over mine. He looked at me in the mirror. I mean, look, I can't find any place that I'm bleeding. I reached up to my hairline and pulled my back my hair to expose the remainder of dried blood. Here, let me see. Zale took my shoulders and spun me around. He reached for my hair and carefully released my ponytail. He examined my hairline. At first, I could feel my body tighten as he touched me. When he noticed the tension in my demeanor, his eyes moved from my hair to meet my eyes. I gave him a small, embarrassed smile to break the awkwardness of my nerves. He didn't seem nervous at all to be in such close proximity to me, but I was very conscious that we were sharing the same air, and with that thought, I held my breath so that I wouldn't breathe on him. I could hold my breath no longer. When I inhaled again, the smell of his cleanliness consumed me. I felt my blood rush as warmth spread through my entire body. Tingling ran down my spine. I hated that. My body was feeling beyond my mind's control. For the first time in a long time, I felt a connection with a man. I suddenly became very aware of his caress on my hair and skin as he moved my chin from side to side, examining my face. His eyes locked with mine. I don't see anything either, he said matter-of-factly. Then something odd happened. He didn't move. He didn't back up. He didn't break eye contact. I closed my eyes to break the gaze between us. I took a deep breath, and without my consent, a tear dropped from beneath my eyelid. A lump swelled in my throat, and I suddenly became overwhelmed with emotion. I hadn't been touched so sweetly in years. I'd never allowed it. I knew what a pathetic creature I must have appeared to be in that moment, but for some reason, I was allowing it. Suddenly, I welcomed the feeling of attraction, of attention. I welcomed anything that wasn't sorrow, regret, or sadness. Are you okay? Zale asked softly with concern. My chin dropped to my chest. I opened my eyes to see that his body hadn't moved an inch from me. 
I sniffed and sheepishly raised my face and eyes to let him see the tears that balanced in them. He reached up and wiped the one loose tear from my cheek. He then pulled my body toward his chest, wrapping one of his hands around me and cradling my head with the other. I buried my face in his chest. He stroked my hair as he hugged me. I could feel his cheeks on the top of my head. I didn't cry out loud, but I cried. I felt safe for the first time in a long time. Then I heard Zale whisper, I knew you were in there somewhere. I smiled to myself. He didn't know me that well, but he must have known that I wasn't what I was pretending to be. Thank you, I whispered back. I pulled away from him, sniffed up the fluid trying to escape my nose and wiped the wetness from my face. I turned back to the mirror. I was still clenching the tissue I'd found earlier, so I used it to clean away the wet dirt. Then, when I restored my face to its natural color, I fixed my ponytail one last time, trying to shake out the dirt and dust. I was relieved to have a chance to fix my face before the caller returned. I'd gotten lucky with timing, too, because the door started to open just as Zale and I took our seats at the desk. But, yet again, the caller was not the one who entered the room. Instead, it was a young kid that entered. I recognized him to be the one I'd seen at the rally earlier that day. I remembered thinking that he seemed out of place among the other thugs in his quadrant. I guessed he was probably in his early 20s. He had a shaven head and small brown eyes. He was small in stature, but didn't seem to realize it. He was in pretty good shape, except for the little belly roll bulging from under his shirt. He strutted in like he was in charge and took a seat behind the desk. Buckley, what, what in the world are you doing here? Zale asked. Where's your dad? My pop will be in shortly, but he asked me to come in and get things started, Buckley answered matter-of-factly. Oh, he did, did he? Zale smirked. He didn't seem to take Buckley seriously at all. And what sort of things are you here to get started? Buckley was obviously intimidated by Zale's presence, presence but was trying not his hardest not to show it. Well, my pop's been busy taking care of stuff, so he can talk to her. He answered, looking over to me with a polite gesture. I didn't say anything. I wasn't sure what to expect. Buckley, go get your dad, Zale ordered. Nuh-uh. He asked me to come in here and get things started. Buckley, go get your dad, Zale ordered again with a straight face. Hey, you don't get to tell me what to do, Zale. I'm a caller, you know, and if you don't knock it off, I'll make sure you don't ever get a call at the rally ever again. Buckley's face turned red with resentment from Zale's blatant disrespect. You're not a caller, so Buckley, go get, Zale started. I'm not going to do that, Buckley interrupted, so stop saying it. Zale shot a glance to me with a smirk that Buckley didn't notice. I realize now that Zale was messing with Buckley on purpose. Buckley, go get your dad, Zale repeated slowly, as if Buckley was too stupid to understand. This time, Buckley stood up and pounded his fist on the desk. Blazing beefcake, Zale, you're pissing me off. Do you know what I can do to you? Zale stood up and leaned over the desk. Compared to poor Buckley, he looked like a giant. Yeah, I do, Buckley. Nothing. You can't do anything to me. Do you know what I can do to you? Zale didn't back down. Buckley's chest deflated. Just then, the door opened, and the caller finally walked in. What's all the racket in here? When he noticed Buckley sitting back down in his chair, he added, Buckley, what are you doing, boy? Get out of my chair. Buckley's face dropped. Brit, is it? The caller asked. 
I nodded, extending my hand to meet his. Thank you for meeting with me, he addressed me as he found his way to his chair. Zale, the caller nodded in Zale's direction. Zale returned the gesture. I guess we have you to thank for traini training a female farmer. It's been years since we've had anyone try that. Zale nodded again. Buckley groaned under his breath as he relinquished his father's chair and settled in to sit on the edge of the desk. Even sitting on the edge of the desk, he was only as tall as Zale sitting in a chair. Buckley probably felt more confident at least being at eye level with his intimidator. His father glared at him as Buckley concentrated on Zale, and it wasn't until Buckley caught his dad's gaze at him that he finally got off the desk and retrieved a chair from the corner of the room instead. The older man took a deep breath as if to compose his annoyance and then turned his attention back to me. Miss Bridge, my name is Rutherford. Please, let me first apologize for your wait. I had no idea I'd be keeping you here so long or I would have asked you to come back. I know that was incredibly rude and I don't want that to be your first impression of me. Second, please accept my apology for my dimwit son here who clearly has no idea who you are or why I've requested this meeting with you, the caller said. Buckley's just a little too small for the britches he's sure he's supposed to have. Someday he'll be doing this job, but he's got a lot to learn. Buckley moaned under his breath. Zale was amused with the insult Rutherford had slammed his son with. Once again, not the first kind of impression I wanted to be given, Rutherford finished. Well, I appreciate that, I said cordially. What did you request this meeting for? I wondered if you would ask that, Rutherford answered. I didn't get the impression from you at the rally that you really knew what kind of treasure you may have stumbled across with that monitor key. I kind of figured it would be of value, but I wasn't sure exactly, no. Can I ask you how you got it? Rutherford asked politely. I glanced over at Zale, who listened carefully as well. Buckley smiled politely at me, also listening intently. I wasn't quite sure what to make of him yet. He was an odd one, for sure. Well... As you know, I went up to farm for the first time today. I cleared my throat and shot a hesitant look to Zale. About halfway in, I got separated from Zale. My understanding was that monitors wouldn't have been out, but I learned the hard way that they're pretty unpredictable. Buckley laughed. That they are! Rutherford rolled his eyes at his son's comment and then gestured for me to continue. When we got separated, I didn't go into detail on why we got separated, and I knew the monitor was trailing me, I decided not to return to the rendezvous point because I was concerned I might lead it back to Zale. I was being honest, but I blushed a little because I was admitting this in front of Zale. Rutherford thought for a moment. Buckley sat quietly, waiting for his father to speak, and after a minute of silence, he chimed in as though he couldn't stand the quiet anymore. Well, if I had been there, I would have just used a salt bomb to get it away from me. Do you know what that does? Buckley looked at me as though I needed him to educate me. I guess he took my refusal to answer to mean I wanted him to continue. Your salt bomb throws the monitors off your trail. They can't taste you in the air that way. She knows that, Buckley, Zell said, clearly annoyed. Anyway, I led the monitor east toward the clock tower, and that's where it cornered me. I hid behind a brick wall. I really don't remember what happened after that because something fell on top of me and I went out cold, but... I knew the monitor was there because I saw it fly overhead. When I woke up, it was gone, and everything around me was on fire. 
I found the tooth lying right next to me on the ground. Rutherford's eyes were wide. You said it flew overhead? You mean you saw it jump? No, it didn't jump. It flew. You didn't tell me that. Zale looked alarmed. I shrugged defensively. I didn't get a chance. Impossible, Buckley chimed in. They don't fly. You must have seen it jump. They can jump up to ten feet. How tall are you? I scowled at him because his logic made no sense to me. I'm telling you, it flew. I looked at Zale for support. I wondered if I was losing credibility. I wondered what they thought I was that I wondered if they thought I was lying for attention. Rutherford was quiet, thinking through the details I'd given. Zale appeared to be thinking the same thing. Could it have been the female? Zale scowled. Female? The cinder dragon, Rutherford said. The what? Is that possible? Zale asked. Either it was her or we've got bigger issues, Rutherford stated. Wait, what's a cinder dragon? The cinder dragon is the only female that we've seen to date. We call her that because of the ash and soot she leaves in her wake. All the other monitors that we've come across are males. We think she's the mother. Rutherford stared at me directly, but I could feel his wheels were still turning. May I see the tooth? Rutherford asked respectfully. I pulled it from the satchel and slid it across the table. He picked it up and examined it. This might be one of hers, he muttered. This may be even more significant a discovery than we thought. What will you do with it? I asked. Rutherford's eyes went from the tooth to me. I'll give it to the research team to look into. They may be able to tell us more. Our research teams have been working on figuring out what the mon where the monitors came from, and we think that if we have more genetic information on them, we might be able to determine their evolution. If we're successful, then we might have a chance at exterminating them. We really would like to get our hands on some of their blood. Blood? We have to figure out where they came from if we have any hope of ever beating them. Until then, we're all just going to waste away in this hole in the ground. Rutherford wrapped the tooth in a tissue and placed it in his pocket. If the monitors have been around for years, then why haven't they stretched out beyond the borders of the city? Rutherford's eyebrows furled. What? Well, I'm from the Ambit, and I said, looking at Zale to confirm what I was saying. His eyes told me to stop talking. The Ambit, Rutherford repeated. I suddenly felt like I said too much. Rutherford's eyes darted around the room. I didn't move. You're from the Ambit? He repeated quietly. I looked at Zale. He was expressionless. I nodded. I was just wondering if you knew why they hadn't ever... I cut myself off. Rutherford tried to contain his confusion. How long have you been here? Six months. And you've never seen a monitor before. Not until tonight, I answered. I find that very interesting. I had no idea that they hadn't already covered the face of the planet. He pondered his answer for a second longer and then finished by hypothesizing, but if I was a betting man, I would guess that with, as with any other species, if they don't figure out how to control their growth patterns, they'll spread out looking for new sources of food. His speculation made complete sense to me. 
I tried to fight off the thoughts that entered my mind about the monitors finding the unprotected ambit that housed my daughter. If there was any way to protect her from the outside, this was it. Rutherford must have read my mind. I wonder, would you be interested in going out with the next research team? Me? I asked. Wait a second, Dale interrupted. I don't think we would, of course, make the risk worth your while. I thought about his offer. I looked to Zale, who was waiting for me to refuse it. I played coy. How? Rutherford shrugged. Make your demand. I looked at Zale again. He scowled at me. I need private living quarters with beds and food rations and cooking oils, I thought for a second. And grass. I need grass. Grass. What do you need that for? Buckley piped in. My son has a goat. She's too thin to produce milk. She needs grass. We can arrange that. Anything else? Rutherford jotted down a list of my requirements. Yes, and I need Zale, I said. I hadn't meant it to sound like it did, so I quickly clarified. I mean, I need him to come with me. He's my partner. Zale's scowl faded. Zale? Rutherford seemed almost disappointed at first. Then he addressed him. You interested? I want prime purchasing opportunities and guaranteed resource sales, Zale added. Rutherford exhaled his annoyance with his demand. Anything else? Zale and I exchanged looks. No. Rutherford's eyes narrowed on me. He thought carefully, like he was reconsidering his offer. I'll make you a deal. I'll make sure you get all of this, he motioned to the list, when you bring me back the Cinder Dragon's blood. Chapter 8, A Mission for Blood Word spread rather quickly that Zale and I had joined the mission to retrieve the Cinder Dragon's blood. Usually I would have done everything in my power to shy away from the attention that it drew to me, but I knew strategically that it made sense to embrace it. I needed to impress whatever puppeteer on the outside pulled the strings to keep the valuable people safe, and it was working. Since agreeing to go on the mission, we'd been left alone. The thugs that once intimidated us now ignored us completely. We were also given double the normal amount of food. Zale and I, along with the other three Blood Mission crew members, spent weeks training together. We learned how to use all sorts of firearms, operate a variety of vehicles, access computers, build fires and find food, the basics of living outside to the outside. We also had adequate training with our other, less conventional weapons like salt bombs, grenades, and machetes. After a month of training like this, my body didn't seem like my own. In competency tests, I surprised myself with quicker reflexes and the ability to use heavy artillery, artillery they provided me. I felt as prepared as I possibly could. Each blood mission crew member was specifically chosen for their area of expertise, their experience, and their athleticism. Zale and I had no say in who was chosen to go with us, which we were very upset about. How were we supposed to go on a life-threatening mission like this without building a rapport with our fellow crew members, which we were entrusting with our lives? I know that if it had been our choice, we never would have chosen Buckley to go with us. My understanding was that Rutherford, Buckley's father, pulled strings to get him on the mission, and as if Buckley needed anything else to blow his ego up, he boasted that his grandfather's highly decorated military career lent him the experience necessary to defend us. I only wish this idea was a reality in life, 
then I would be a full-fledged doctor by association rather than by training. How grand would that be? The only other female on the mission was Fairchild, whom I'd personally grown to adore. She was one of the smartest people I'd ever met, specializing in monitor science. She's not what you would picture at all for a bookworm. She's stunning, with clear, smooth, pale skin, deep red locks, and big, bright green eyes. Chronologically, she's only 22 years old, but 40-something seemed a more fitting age. Her wealth of knowledge in medicine, human and animal anatomy, and monitor research advancements had earned her credit as one of the most qualified researchers in the outside. Honestly, there weren't many to choose from, so she was selected, which Sale and I agreed was a good choice, especially because most of the other options were all old men. Fairchild was a breath of fresh air because she hardly seemed to notice her own beauty and was rarely preoccupied with the usual 20-something distractions like men and gossip. Rumor had it that she and Buckley had once been entangled romantically. I hadn't asked her about it because I feared that I would lose respect for her if it was true. Apparently, even the smartest of us can have moments of ignorance when it comes to love. Her main responsibility on the mission was to retrieve and return whatever samples of blood we were able to capture. For this reason, she was invaluable to the blood mission and was priority number one for protection. And lastly, there was Gunner. Gunner was a 40-something grump who was excellent with a shotgun, had reflexes like a cat and animal-like instincts. He was gruff in appearance, to put it mildly, but I had to admit that under his watch, I might actually be able to sleep a wink in the uncharted territory. Since we anticipated needing to spend at least two nights out there, I was grateful for him, as unpleasant as he may have been. Farmer Gunner was an ex-farmer who retired himself once he cemented his reputation as a real threat that no one wanted to mess with. I think, like Zale, he took the blood mission assignment for the glory of it. Being that he was raised in the outside, he hadn't struggled with the ethics of only serving oneself. He and Zale both seemed to be looking forward to boasting their roles in acquiring the blood and turning the tides of the human war against monitors. When the day of the mission finally arrived, the crowds cheered us on as we made our way to the floor where our two transport vehicles were packed and waiting for us. I had expected to find the usual harem of women crying and wailing over Zale, but there were literally hundreds of people who had crammed themselves into the floor platform to see us off. As our gondola drew closer to the crowd, their cheers grew and their chants became audible. Blood, blood, blood. It seemed a little eerie to me that the crowd was so obsessed with blood that they would rally there to cheer us on. I actually thought at one point that perhaps they were cheering for our blood, not the monitors. I scanned the faces of the crowd. People of all ages, backgrounds, and perspectives had come together. I was awestruck to see so many people from the outside in one place, but even more impressive were the smiles that swelled their faces. They seemed almost happy. It gave me chills to think I might actually be bringing them hope. I hadn't given much thought to what the blood mission would mean for the outside. I'd only taken time to consider my own fear of the monitor epidemic expanding to the unknowing, unprotected ambit and the benefits that it would supply me and Seth. And so now, for the first time, it occurred to me that we were restoring some optimism to the outside. Perhaps they'd been misled into putting more stock into the mission than it deserved, but even opiates for the masses was better than the sobering reality of this underworld. As I approached the crowd, 
I could make out the tall, lanky, blonde boy in the front, beaming from ear to ear and chanting along with the rest. Forever loyal by his side stood his silly little goat who he had named Nanny. Seth had domesticated Nanny like a dog, and she loved to accompany him wherever he allowed her to follow. Up until recently, she hadn't been allowed to roam with him for fear that someone may have seen her as an option on their dinner menu. But now that we had an imaginary force field protecting us wherever we went, she could follow him as she pleased, and no one would bother her or him. She never strayed from him and never disobeyed him. She was the epitome of loyalty to Seth, just as he was to me. Since we'd arrived on the outside, Seth had adjusted slowly. He spent a lot of time alone reading Isla's Bible. I often heard him humming songs and talking to himself before bed. At first, I was concerned, but after a while, I realized that his prayers, as he called them, were harmless and seemed to provide a sense of peace for him. He was finally able to find solace in this miserable place, and I was thankful for that. Besides, who was I to say that he shouldn't indulge in something that he had such faith in? I recalled the, the first night after my banishment and how I laid in the hammock and begged the night to take away my fear and pain. I remembered the peace that I felt that night. If Seth's prayers were anything like that was for me, then I supported it. I'd often thought of that night in the hammock, and it had restored my own faith in whatever was out there looking after us. As I said, opiates for the masses. Seth ran to me. Can you believe this? He tried to be heard over the chanting crowd. We're all so proud of you. What do you have to be proud of me for? I shouted back over the din. Everything, he replied with a glisten in his eyes. I thought it was a tear of fear at first, but he seemed so joyful that I couldn't assume what the glisten was for. I pondered for a few seconds how this amazing child had grown before my eyes in a matter of a few short months. With the maturity and strength that he personified, I half expected him to be as fearful and unsure about his future as he was the night Els died. But today, just over a year later, he was completely a different person. Whatever assurance he had that everything would turn out okay, I wanted. My mind wandered again to the night in the hammock, but was interrupted by Seth. Before you go, would you mind if we prayed together? He smiled cautiously, clearly preparing himself for rejection. He'd asked me many times if I would let him pray over me, and I'd always refused, excusing myself politely. Maybe it was that he'd caught me in just the right moment between thoughts of his spiritual growth, my lack of it, and wonder about it. But I did want him to pray over me. Just this once, I wanted to feel peace about the blood mission like he did. If he could help me find that and ease my shaking nerves I struggled to hide, I was open to it. Just this once. I nodded. Seth's smile broke into a full grin, and he grabbed my hand and pulled me away from the crowd. Let's go somewhere quiet, he called back to me. As Seth pulled me through the people that clapped and cheered me as I passed, I turned to shrug at Sale, who followed my exit with his eyes. Nanny followed us, grunting as people stepped in her path, blocking her from following her beloved Seth. But she was fearless, and she had no shame in bowing her head and butting her way through. Seth found a quiet corner for us to duck around, and Nanny caught up to us. He knelt down on the concrete and tugged my hand. I knelt down next to him. I know you must have a lot going on in your head right now, he said to me, so you should close your, close your eyes while I pray. Then your mind won't be distracted and you can focus on God. 
God was someone who talked about at great length since his transformation. I knew from Isla that God was a character in her book, but I didn't quite understand the idea of praying to him. In this moment, I didn't care, though. I was open to anything. Seth closed his eyes. I closed mine, too. Nanny scavenged for food nearby. Seth prayed. Dear Lord, I won't pretend that you don't already know why we're here. I won't pretend that you don't already know how the blood mission will go. I also won't pretend, Lord, that your will in this mission isn't already going to be played out. In my head, I began questioning the point of his prayer if we weren't going to ask Lord for these things. Seth continued, But Lord, I ask for peace. I ask for peace for Britt and the crew as they go out to do what they believe is necessary to protect your people. I ask that you will wrap her and the others in your love and protection. I pray that if darkness should fall over their paths, that you would show them your face, your glory, and your grace. Through this, Lord, we ask for you to make yourself known. Seth paused for a long minute, then he finished with a, whisp with a whisper. Show her what you've shown me. What did that mean? I was more than curious and confused at this point. Amen, Seth said. Then he opened his eyes, reached up for my hands, and squeezed them. I can't say that many people are able to humble me like Seth can. His faith was so pure and hopeful. He was only 13 years old and yet seemed to be wise beyond his years. Remember how you told me that you would claim me if no one else would? He asked. I squinted at him. I wasn't sure how this had to do with anything. Yes. You changed me forever when you did that, Seth continued. My chin dropped to my chest. His words struck a chord in me. You saved me. I felt a lump in my throat and my chin quivered. And Britt, you've been saved too. I just know it. He looked me straight in the eye. You just don't know it yet. But if you get in a jam out there, just ask him for help. I had no idea what Seth was talking about. I didn't know who he thought was going to save me. We'd taken every pre precaution to take care of ourselves on the blood mission with extensive training and preparation. Besides, I'd always taken care of myself, and I wasn't about to start playing the damsel in distress now. For a split second, I was almost insulted at his insinuation that I would need someone to save me. But I let that feeling pass because this was Seth, and Seth would never knowingly insult me. I love you, Miss Britt, he whispered as he leaned in and wrapped his arms around me. I exhaled the offense I had taken to his previous comment and embraced him back. I love you too, Seth.